He is a glorious and an amazing, amazing God who we serve. He loves us and cares about us, is involved in our lives, wants us to love him because he loves us. Our Father and our God, we are privileged and we are glad to be together in this place of worship with God's people. Father, I know that you have for them a word of encouragement today. Lord, uh, we have already, our, our hearts and our souls have already been lifted up by the songs of praise and worship and adoration and the reminders that you are the great God, creator of the universe, that you are the awesome, powerful God. Father, forgive us for not living with a confidence and security of, a, of, of serving the God of the universe. And I pray this morning that by your word you will remind us afresh of how amazing, how powerful you are, how much you love us, and what kind of lives we ought to live in light of all of that. Father, you have given us a great insight prophetically into the way things are and into future things. You have given them to us not for intellectual stimulation, but that we might know how to live, and that we, we might live in light of eternity and the promise of eternity with Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning that our hearts will really be lifted up, we will worship you properly, and we will serve in the places where you have put us with great confidence. Make us salt, make us light, where we are, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever let this idea just leap across the landscape of your mind, how great it would be just to be rich and famous? Have you ever thought of that just for a few moments to think, uh, the number of doors that could be open to me if I could just purchase some friends and some influence and, and all that goes with that. I wonder how much energy each of us have put into this week seeking to advance that reality in our lives. But, you, when, you, but when you really take a look inside of the life of the rich and powerful... The reality is not all that attractive, especially to those who have not chosen to have God in their lives. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me in crisis and said, I don't know how people who don't have God in their lives, don't have the Lord in their lives, can get through. I don't know how they can can go another day in light of the the challenge and the crisis of, of, of the moments of life. How do they get along? How do they do it? Well, in truth, they don't do very well. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2? We're going to bump into a very rich and famous and powerful man. He had the whole world under his control. But he didn't have God. And he wasn't doing very well. In fact, we're amazed to find that just a dream set him in a state of anxiety that is unmatched, I would assume, by any lives in here that know the Lord. Daniel chapter 2 is a long chapter and it's filled with an amazing story of prophecy, of a challenge between a 
godless king and a man filled with God. And that primarily is the message and the theme of the chapter is this this challenge, this moment, this showdown. But the prophecy that is included in the chapter is quite astonishing, actually. Because it also serves to encourage God's people for all time. Now, it's a very long chapter, and I'm going to invite you to stand as we read it. If you can, in deference to our great God, and just in light of the glorious presence of God this morning, to just be in His presence and to stand together right now as we read His Word. If you, if you can't, that's okay. God knows you're standing in your heart as we read His Word together. In the second year of His reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, which, by the way, is the primary language that Jesus used when on earth. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have to cut you into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. Are you hearing the challenge set up here? No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. 
He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay or or glazed pottery. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces. At the same time, it became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, little king of little kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain. But not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. 
The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Never forget those friends who prayed for you when you were in a pinch. And when God delivers you, remember them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, I want to, um, to uh, look at a question this morning. How good is it to belong to God? And I hope this will encourage you. I want to look at it from three vantage points that I think grow out of the text here this morning. The battle line is strategically drawn and starkly drawn here. It's the great and powerful and mighty Nebuchadnezzar who was ruler over all the realm of the ancient Near East and the expanse of that over against a measly man of God's wisdom. And this most powerful, mighty man in the world was reduced to rubble over a mere dream. That's all it took to shake him to the very core of his being. You see, when it says in the text here that that he was troubled in verse 1 and he could not sleep, this is not some sort of passing moment of waking up with cold sweats and and lying in his bed and being somewhat anxious. Uh, The the meaning and the significance of the the original wording there is that that his, his soul, in fact, his spirit was struck in itself. It struck itself. His spirit pummeled itself. This was a a moment of great terror. Here he is, the most powerful man in the world. Shaking to his very core over a dream. Now, I want to point out to you when answering the question, how good is it to to belong to God, that I want to show you the bankruptcy of godlessness from this text. Troubled by a dream. And um, the man is messed up. And so we look and we say, well, so, so where would a man like this turn? Where would be the first he would turn? And, and the best that he has to turn to are the Hartamim, the Asapim, the Makashapim, and the Kastim. You're saying, What? Do all Hebrew words sound with im? If they're plural, they do. It's like putting a S in everything. It's magicians, sorcerers, snake charmers, and wise men. That's the best he had in the kingdom. And so he calls them. He summons them to himself. And I think as we, we, we are introduced to this story and as we start to climb in emotionally... To to me, what's most striking at first glance is that no amount of power 
or prestige or position can alleviate insecurity or turmoil or fear. You can neither contract security nor threaten to ensure protection. When powerful men discover that there are limitations to their power, they invariably turn to bizarre and irrational behavior. We have seen this down through history. We have seen despots come to power in world history. And invariably, they find out there are limitations to their power, and they do bizarre and brutal and irrational things. Nebuchadnezzar stands at the front of the line as one of those. Quite simply, because power without potency moves people to brutality. That's the first um, subset of the bankruptcy of godlessness. It's this so-called power that is only fueled by human strength. And and so you have this statement that he makes of complete brutality. He says to them, uh, he only has one weapon at his disposal. I can either threaten or I can bribe. But it's all related to human power and ingenuity. And so he threatens, what you don't see in your text there is, he, he says he threatens to tear them literally limb from limb. If you know anything about the brutality of the ancient Near East despot, we're talking about tying your arm, your left arm, to a horse, tying your right arm to a horse, tying your right leg to a different horse, and tying your left leg to a different horse, and inviting them all to run in separate directions. That was the threat on their lives. Not only that, he says, I will turn your houses into literally dunghills. If you do not, tell me what my dream was. Power without potency always moves to brutality. But the second reality of this bankruptcy of godlessness is the fact that he had no confidence in his brightest and best advisors in the land. Somewhere in the back recesses of his mind, he had come to the conclusion that these Dream interpreters, these snake charmers, these magicians, these, these enchanters were uh, hoodwinking him. And so he presents to them this challenge. I want you not only to interpret my dream, but I'm not going to tell you my dream. I want you to tell me what I dreamed last night and then interpret it. See, they had become accustomed to dreams, of course. In fact, that was one of their specialties, the study of dreams. Archaeologists have, have discovered uh, um, archaeological books dating back to the ancient Near East that were massive dream books, dream interpretation books. So you would come to them and say, I had a dream about I was flying last night, and then I plummeted into the sea. And they would go, oh, just a second, and they'd flip their book. Yes, that means, you know, they would put their hat on and tell you what that meant. And, and um, Jessica's trying to kill me back here. And, and, uh, and, and it, it meant, uh, as, far as, as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, he was wondering, have you been telling me wicked lies? It says that in the text. 
I'm going to throw a new challenge in front of you because this dream has so freaked me out that I want you to tell me what the dream was. Now, if some of you have a King James Version, it implies in verse 5 that he forgot the dream. That's not a good interpretation. I mean, think about it. Over and over again, he's telling them, I want you to tell me the dream, and I also want you to interpret it. That was the big deal. You see, the uh, second aspect of this bankruptcy of godlessness is enchantment without assurance. The man was entirely insecure about his best counselors. Now, um, don't you just hate it when, when you're supposed to feel really confident and assured by those things that insure you? The date was December 23rd, two days before Christmas, 1998. I received a letter on my desk, attention, the controller of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. That wasn't really me, but I like the, I like the title. Insurance plan. When the year 2000 arrives, it is anticipated that many computer systems will fail. Kemper Canada, licensed to write insurance in Canada as Lumbermen's Mutual Casualty Company, I should have known it was problems then. We are lumberjack and we're okay kind of insurance company. Is notifying you that your existing Kemper Canada insurance policies will not respond to many of the problems arising from the year 2000 or Y2K. Remember that? All you who were old enough to be alive 11 years ago. In order to emphasize the intent of Kemper Canada's policy wording, specific endorsements will be added to most policies issued by Kemper Canada with an effective date of January 1, 1999 and beyond. Losses resulting directly from the year 2000 problem generally will not be accidental. The issues associated with the problem are well publicized and predictable, and the generally accepted position of the insurance industry is that many direct losses are not insurable. Don't you just love it? When they take your premiums, but they don't look after you when Y2K shows up. You remember shaking in our boots, being all insecure about all of that? Weren't you? Were God's people really, what's going to happen to us? So the enchanters and the charmers in the text, they call out to Nebuchadnezzar, and they're saying to him in verse 10, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king our greater mighty has ever asked any such thing. They're actually whining and complaining to him. They're actually filing a grievance. The king, this is crazy what you're asking us to do. We're going to take this up with the, the brotherhood and association of snake charmers, and we're going to take you to task over this. And they're like, hey, wait a second. You guys are about to lose your heads. Maybe you ought to just lighten up a little bit. But they're saying there's no man who could ever do this. This is crazy. And then they say this. Verse 11. What the king asks is too difficult. No no one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. This is the third aspect of godlessness. Gods who are aloof and uninvolved. They say, we we don't know how to break this to you gently, king. But we're not really in touch with gods. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had it in his mind that 
that, that, that he was looking for a supernatural answer. He, he had had enough of the dream books. He'd had enough of the human wicked lies and trickery and chicanery. His wants something supernatural. And he had it in his heart that, that these guys had some link to the supernatural. And, and, if, and if he could control them and they were in touch with the supernatural, then he could control the supernatural. We don't know how to break it to you gently, oh godless king. But we're not in touch with God. And so we're brought to this climactic moment in the story. What's going to happen? The decree is, is put out to kill all of the wise men, which will include our, our four Judean friends. No man can interpret this. There's a distant separation between God and the gods and man's affairs, according to the enchanters. The challenges between magic, human deficiency, and the possibilities of divine reality and human enablement on the basis of that divine reality. How good is it to belong to the Lord in light of the bankruptcy of godlessness? Well, there is the richness of being targeted with God's wisdom. So what do God's people do? By the way, the killing fields had already begun. The slaughter was already taking place. The magicians and the enchanters, the snake charmers and the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, they were already being hacked to pieces. And Daniel goes to the king and says, give us some time, give me some time. And what does he do? What's the first thing that God's people do in a crisis, in a moment of anxiety, in a moment of great trial and trouble? They run to God, of course. He goes to his friends and they have a prayer meeting. In Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 2 and 3, this is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. What's the first thing that God's man does? What's the first thing that God's woman does? What's the first thing that God's young person does? We run to God. He invites us to come to me, call to me. And so we're excited to read that. He's gone to, he's gone to his friends. Look at, mark it down well. The most powerful people on the face of the earth are people in touch with God. Unlike the Babylonian god, small g and despotic king, we serve a God who is as close as prayer and full of mercy. What do they do here? I mean, what's, what's at stake I mean, as we look at this story 2,600 years ago, we, it's a fascinating story. It's an interesting story for a Sunday morning. But how does it really touch my life? I mean, I mean, I suspect that there aren't many of you out here this moment under death threats. These guys were. They're moments away. The Arioch, the commander, is, is upon them. They're moments away from losing their lives I mean, this is serious business. So when we think of what's at stake for them, we say, well, of course they had a lot at stake. Their lives were on the line. Listen, 
Brothers and sisters, your lives are on the line every day of your life. You say, what are you talking about? Have you never heard of the kingdom of darkness? Have you never heard of the evil one who sets about to steal and kill and destroy? You think your lives are not under threat? You think your children's lives are not under threat? You think your houses, your possessions, your jobs are not under threat by the kingdom of evil and darkness every day of your lives? You think you don't have this urgency in your life? You absolutely do. What's at stake is the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness that is not only resident 2,600 years ago, but is resident in this room, in this very place, in your very pew, October 2nd, 2011. And so they humble themselves, it says. He says, he says to them, pray to, the God for mer- pray to our God for mercy. Why mercy? Why this act of humility? Why not just stand to the Lord and say, hey, Lord, why don't you just protect us? We're your, you're yours. Why this moment of mercy? Because Daniel has told us here, praise be to verse 20, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Every time we come to God in prayer, we are asking God, the great God of the universe, to give us something of his. He is the owner of all things. Everything belongs to God. When we go to him in prayer, we go to him and ask for mercy because everything we are asking for belongs to him. And what we are in fact asking him for is, Lord, would you grant me what is yours that I need right now? And so you go with hat in hand, soul in Hand on, on your knees begging and asking for mercy. And you go with confidence then to act in a crisis because you have conviction that the sovereign God is at work in the situation and cares about people. Never be found standing on the sidelines. Failing God's purpose and mission for lack of prayer. And so, with urgency they pray. And it says in the text that God answered that prayer. And he revealed the answer to them You see, when we are people who belong to God, we have assurance through revelation. We're not of those who have enchanters, diviners, and sorcerers who bring us no assurance. No, we serve a living God who has given us a revelation of himself. We come before him knowing who he is and what he brings to us. Daniel knew before he prayed who God was. You are the great God of all power and all wisdom. You are the God who is the ruler over all the universe. And so Daniel wades in with confidence. God has not hidden himself from us. Our God has revealed himself to us through his word and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might know who he is. 
that in days of trouble and trial and anxiety and, and when the foundations are quaking around us, we know who our God is and we know what he has and we know what's available to us. There is a wise solution. God will grant to his faithful one and he intends to use that one to be the answer to people's prayers. You may be the answer to people's prayers. People in trouble. We serve a God who makes himself, his ways, and his will known to the nonconformists. The ones who will be different where they are. What do I mean by that? Stop being conformed to the likeness of this world and be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you will be able to, to approve of the perfect and good and wonderful will of God. Romans 12, 2. That's what they were appealing to. That we might know. And I would submit to you that, that God intends to use us where we are to step into dangerous situations and burst into them We serve a God who cares about people and is opposed to wrongs. That's why fundamentally we should not mind our own business. You know, you've been told since you were a little kid probably, mind your own business. That's not scriptural. Yes, mind your business first. Take care of it. Take care of your own heart. Make sure your heart is sound before God. But we've not been called to mind our own business. We've been called to make a difference in the business with which, wherein God has placed us, among the people that God has placed us. As much as the, the, the magicians and the enchanters and the snake charmers and the Chaldeans were godless people, God cares about people. God didn't want a massive slaughter of people. He wants people to come to know him and know his greatness. So Daniel steps in and his friends because real wisdom and uncontested power are resident in God alone. This was as good as, as dead in terms of an impossible situation. The request was to tell the king his dream and then interpret it. Your garden variety circus clowns with prophetic Ponzi schemes, we're not going to pull this one off. But Daniel says in verse 28, there is a God in heaven. <laughs> that's, that's our richness. That's our riches. That's our riches in every circumstance, in every situation that is seeking to shake our very foundation. It's to turn and say, but there is a God in heaven. And he can reveal mysteries. He's an all-powerful God and all things are in his hands. What no man can do, God can do. That's why we want to assemble tonight and testify to one another of the great things that God is doing, the power that's required in our lives, the, the, the sharing with one another of, of, of praises to God. What did the three of them do? They praised God. They didn't fail to praise God when he answered their prayers, when he showed them his great power, when he showed them to go this direction and not, not that direction. I know the way I have for you. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Go this way. 
We need to share that with each other, how God moved us to make choices to say yes and to make choices to say no. And what were the amazing results of the power of God? Make no mistake about it. We should not measure the impossibility of a situation against the abilities of people. When you are on God work, you become agents of the miraculous. Has God used you miraculously? Have you ever put yourself into a circumstance or a situation where it would require the miraculous of God to intervene? If not, why not? Yes, it took great faithful courage on Daniel's part, but that's the point. He was a man of God. He knew who his God was, and he steps up and says to this king who's going to take his head off and his arms off and produce a dunghill out of his home, give me a few moments. Let me talk to my God. I'll come back with the answer. I mean, that's laying it on the line. That's saying, but you know what? There is a God in heaven. You may tell me I can't have this. You may tell me I can't do this. You may tell me this door is shut. You may tell me that you're going to come down on me in power. But I want you to know, there is a God in heaven. And I'm going to come back to you and tell you what he has to say. That's the kind of people God wants us to be. He, he, this Daniel, is. we look at it and say, ah, Daniel's a superstar in God's kingdom. God wants all of us to be superstars in God's kingdom. He saved us by the same Jesus Christ. He's put in our hearts and our lives residently the same Jesus Christ. So what's your problem? I'm, I'm, uh, I don't have the time to delve into the prophetic this morning to the degree that I would love to, but... Mark my word, I will, I will have my way with, <laughs> with this story and, and share with you the pro- prophecies of this because they are amazing. But I, I want to give you just a taste, an appetizer this morning. I, I want to whet your appetite and, and we will talk more. We have Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. We have other times where we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this. But I, I don't want to lose out in the central message this morning of God's power and, and our confidence in God's power as the theme. Because the prophetic is not to, to titillate our, our intellect. It, it's not for the purposes of, of, of schooling us in, in, in biblical knowledge so that we can be prophetic heads and go out and tell everybody what's going on. It is to tell us how then shall we live in light of all of this. And I want to make sure you have the central message of the prophetic here this morning. And that is the majesty of an in charge God. There's the bankruptcy of godlessness. And there's the uh, richness of being targeted with God's wisdom. And finally, there is the majesty of an in charge God. And let me just give you the high points of this. The mystery is unveiled. Daniel steps forward. Daniel, by the way, goes to God and got got to share in the attributes of God. That's what he says in verse 23. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have given me by your mercy what you didn't have to, by your grace what you didn't have to, what I didn't deserve. You have given me a share in your attributes. 
You know what? I just choose to believe that this is not only an ancient reality. You know, I, I, I so desire in my heart that we would never reflect what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy would happen in the last days. Where he said that there would be people of God, there would be churches that would have a form of godliness, but, it, but they would deny the power thereof. That, that somehow they would know how all the religious rituals and they'd be able to tell all of the stories of God's power back then. But they would be convinced and they would live with each other in ways that denied the present power of God. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The same God of Daniel is the God that we serve. This God of great power. And he wants us to be the kind of people who know what it is to experience the power of God to change circumstances and situations that we could never believe God could do something about. I choose to believe that that is the present reality with the people of God in 2011. And it'll be the reality in 2012 should Jesus not come back before then. Now, this, as I said, is just an appetizer of the amazing prophetic journey For all who long for the final majesty of the Christ. Because that's what we're talking about. That's what this dream is about. Quite simply put, Daniel outlined from Nebuchadnezzar's dream the uh, four kingdoms, four empires of human history. And a fifth kingdom, a fifth empire, the empire of God. And, And Daniel ruled out by, by the obvious dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel rolls out human history from that point on for eternity. It's the most amazing prophecy. Uh, you have been let in, as God's people, you have been let in on, on the, uh, the, the realities of human history right through to eternity in this text. And the overriding reality and the overriding theme and the overriding conclusion of all of this is that the universe is rolled out based on the will and the love and the power and the glory of God. For those of you who think we're at the mercy of nations or we're at the mercy of despotic kings or we're at the mercy of economies or we're at the mercy of natural things or we're at the mercy of good luck or we're at the mercy of astrology... This text and the truth of this text says, no, 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 a thousand times no. We are under the dominion and domain of a God, a sovereign God over the universe who causes all things to come to pass for his purposes and his glory. That's what Daniel was standing forward in this king of kings, little k, little k, saying, I serve the king over all things. And this, O King Nebuchadnezzar, is how the future will roll out from now to eternity. There's a gold kingdom. Give me that statue. There's a gold kingdom. There's a silver kingdom. There's a bronze kingdom. And there's an iron kingdom. Now, Please understand this. These are the memoirs of a 6th century B.C. man. Telling us things that occurred hundreds of years later, including through to eternity. 
This should be quite amazing to any of you who take a look at this. And of course, there's a lot who try to attack this and say, oh, this was written after the historic facts. So amazing is this prophecy that the critics of the word of God do everything possible to try and convince godless people that this had to have been written in around 100 B.C., And even that's inadequate because some of the things, even even if that were true, which it's not, some of the things that are prophesied here will happen thousands of years after that. Six hundred five BC to five thirty nine BC, the Empire of Babylon, total dictatorship, gold. Five thirty nine to three thirty one. Two arms, the silver thing, two kingdoms, Media, Persia. King subject to government decisions, a weaker form of government. 331 to 146, the dominance of Greece and republicanism. 146 BC and on the domination of Rome and the Western empires. And by the way, we had two legs of iron. We have the East and the West separation. We have feet. We have ten toes. We have kingdoms that are implied in those toes. We have iron mixed with pottery. We have a very unstable base. The kingdoms of this world, as great as they are, are pictured on this crumbling, unstable statue. We have this amazing prophecy of a Roman Western context dominating the world, whereby it says there will be ten kingdoms, ten nations, referring to other kings in some sort of quasi-alliance, yet disunited. What's the lingo we use now everywhere? Globalization. Greece gets pneumonia and the whole world gets sick to the tune of $3 trillion in one day. And Daniel says, but king, there's another kingdom. It's a rock. It's not cut. It's cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. And that rock, verse 44, King Nebuchadnezzar, is someday going to smash the kingdoms of the world. The gold kingdoms and the silver kingdoms and the bronze kingdoms and the iron kingdoms. And they'll be pulverized into powder like chaff in a summer threshing floor. And a simple breeze will blow them away. And this rock will grow into a great mountain and it will fill the whole world. And the dominance of God will be so great it will cover the universe in every corner. King Nebuchadnezzar, this was your dream, and this is a trustworthy interpretation. Now, when a man can tell another man what he dreamed, that man has a lot of confidence in the interpretation. And what does King Nebuchadnezzar say? Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, for who else could do such things? Loved, listen, the empires of this world, 
are not actually undone by their moral failures and economic collapses or social upheavals. Human kingdoms fall and history is altered when they give way to the kingdom of Christ. For Christ is the rock. Listen to how the disciple Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. For the scripture, in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him, that rock, that stone, will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, this stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. They stumble because they disobey the message. The stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Beloved, listen. Our God. Our God is in charge of the universe. Our God is in charge of each situation. Whether you're on rocky, crumbling, unstable footing right now, anxious, in turmoil, in trouble, in struggle, your God, if you serve the living God, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, your God is in charge. You can wade into a situation and be courageous. Uh, where are you? In the setting you're in. And, the, and people are being hurt. Evil things are being done. Godless things are being done. You can step into that situation and say, there is a God in heaven who's holding you accountable for these things. If you don't have a relationship with that God, the rock, there's coming a day in this prophecy and every one of these kingdoms fell just as this prophecy said. We should have no reason to disbelieve that the rock, that kingdom of God, will come. It's already upon us. It's already in the hearts and lives of those who are following Jesus Christ. But it will someday be a universal political kingdom. In the era of those kings, it says, God's kingdom will be set up. Mark it well. It will happen. And there is coming a day when time will be no more. For now, the message and the urgency of this message is get in on the rock now. Respond to Christ now. Receive him now. Our urgent message to all those who are taking shelter in houses of cards. And let's build our lives and our ministry so, they will, so that people around us will say, surely your God is God of God. And Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. Father, I pray this morning that you will uh, strengthen our lives, strengthen our hearts, move us, help us, enable us, Lord, to truly, truly stand firm and courageous. Though the earth give way, though the mountains shake, though they fall into the sea, yet, Lord, You are the gracious and sovereign God of the universe. Lord, I pray that God's people this morning would rally around the truth of your greatness. Fall before you, the God who's full of mercy. Seek you in prayer. And experience your power to change circumstances and situations for your honor and glory's sake, I pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Can I just encourage you this morning as we sing this last song together? Can, you, can we just stand together as we are dismissed? I'm 
pretty confident that in this room this morning, there are people who are going through very, very distressful times, very, very uh, dangerous times, very, very um, anxious times. And I want to encourage you this morning as we sing this last song together to make this place up front here a a place of, of coming and asking for the mercy of God to help you out in your situation. To take this text and say, wait a second, there's a God in heaven. What am I, what am I thinking? What am I doing? Why am I so anxious? Why am I trying to, to, to solve this on my own strength? You come and our, our staff, our pastoral staff and others will be here. We'll pray with you this morning, encourage you through this text. You come as we're singing. But I also, I also am sure there's somebody here who says, I'm just part of these empires that are going down. I don't know this Christ. I'm not in this rock kingdom. I, I need Jesus Christ in my life. I believe that, that he is the son of God and that he was sent and that he did walk among us and, and that he did go to the cross of Calvary to die for my sins and that, and that by believing in him, I can have eternal life and I can have my sins forgiven and a relationship with God and I can get in on that rock kingdom right now. You come forward. We'll pray with you and show you more clearly from God's word how you can walk with him. You come while we're singing. We'll meet you down here this morning. You come now. Father and our God, help us truly to rest upon the truth that you are the sovereign God over the universe and that you are a prayer-answering God. And if we throw ourselves to you, asking you for your mercy, you are a God full of mercy. You long to give us what is yours, that we might be helped in time of trouble. And so I pray, Father, that you would reassure us with confidence this week and these days as we go into the places you've called us to, to be salt and light with great confidence because you are a great God and we love you and we praise you and we thank you for meeting with us here today, for allowing us to meet with you, our God who is as close as prayer and full of mercy. To you alone we bring praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.